Welcome to Ad Hoc History. It's not the history podcast you wanted, it's the history podcast you deserve. What's up, Asher? How's it going, dude? Pretty good. I'm glad to hear it. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, everybody listening. As you may or may not know, I'm Lux Estrada, and we are stoked to be here today talking about Attila the Hun. That's right. We're finally going to get to Attila. After much lead up and suspense, we're going to actually, we're going to do it. We're going to talk about Attila the Hun. We are. Full disclosure, this might or might not be our second take. <laughs> <laughs> we may have had to re-record this episode due to... Things happen sometimes yeah. when you're podcasting. And uh, yeah, so I'm stoked to talk about it more, actually, because I found a little bit more information on the Sword of Attila or the Sword of God or the Sword of Mars, all very dope names, which... Uh, looking forward to sharing with everybody. Hell yeah. Absolutely, dude. Um, yeah, so I apologize for the delay with this episode. We we ran into some technical difficulties. And um, yeah, have a, probably like a exclusive Patreon episode maybe in the works. <laughs> we'll uh, see. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. All right. So just to pick up from where we were last time, we talked about the Battle of Adrianople where the emperor Valens had invited all these Gothic nations into his country, proceeded to treat them like complete and other crap. And eventually they rose up in rebellion and fought this big brutal war with the Roman empire, the Gothic war. And Rome was pretty much uh, inundated with these Gothic tribes. They lost a lot of big battles. And this guy named Alaric led an army down to Rome and sacked it. It was the first time in a long time it had been sacked. And so the Goths have kind of taken a big chunk out of Roman prestige, out of Roman power and wealth. And they've kind of retreated into France and set up their own kingdom around the city of Toulouse. And this is the Visigothic kingdom. And so the Roman empire is still around. It's still, you know, going through the motions. They've just basically lost a lot of their military might by this point through the gothic war yeah so the uh the slow decline of rome continues at this point in the story right yeah and it's it's actually going to pick up here so the big thing that happens between the hunnic wars and the gothic wars is the invasion of the vandals and the vandals were another germanic tribe that you know came out of you know eastern europe and they we're living in the Baltic area in like Poland, Lithuania, um, Latvia, those areas. And within a very short time span, I think within like five, six, seven years, they had crossed all the way through France, through Spain. They crossed into North Africa and they conquered the Roman province of North Africa and made their capital at Carthage. And this was a really big disaster for Rome because Africa had been untouched by all these civil wars for the most part. And that's where they were getting all their food. But all of a sudden these barbarians, um, they basically control the food supply. And Gibbon says something like 500 years after the Punic Wars, once again, ships left Carthage to attack the Romans. But it wasn't Carthaginians this time, it was Vandals. But So anyways, the Vandals, led by the, a man by the name of Gezerik, they had set up this powerful kingdom in North Africa. And, you know, it was just another massive slight to the Romans where they lost this, um, they lost their food supply, basically. And 
the Vandals went on to become pirates and they were kind of a big pain in the butt throughout the entire Mediterranean. But so that's kind of what's happened between these times. And they were such a pain in the butt that we still know the name today in terms of like vandalizing something, right? That's where that that's that's where that's from, right? Their name has gone down in infamy. Like the like the zealots, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's fair or not. Um I will say Gezerik He's probably a guy that could have his have an, his own episode because he's very clever. He's very um, very good at politics. He's the barbarians were really I don't know like they had some really clever leaders coming out of the woodwork. Yeah, and so like I, I this term barbarian like it seems so like I don't know diminutive or whatever, but because like a lot of times we see that these folks while they might not always have had like written language like they had like really advanced tech. And they were smart. So, like, yeah, I don't know. Uh, and they were extremely formidable. I mean, and scary. It, it's kind of a catch-all term. And I think it, it does have negative connotations. But at the same time, these were really negative times for the people that were having to deal with these, you know, with these tribes and these invaders and stuff. So, you know, I think I think it's just kind of a little bit of both. Like, um, they probably weren't behaving any worse than, like, the Romans or the Persians or anybody else, really. But... The fact that they came from a different civilization, a different culture, different religions, they were just much more scary than the enemy that, you know, they were familiar with. Oh, yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I'm just wondering if the term like barbarian has like, it necessarily has like some kind of like, I don't know, xenophobia inherent in it, right? Like, I mean, I think it, yeah, I think it does. Maybe not xenophobia, but like civilizational bias or... It seems to even be beyond the nation. It seems to be like a civilizational thing, like a way of life, maybe. Sure. But yeah, and ultimately, well, you know, the we don't really have shepherds and nomadic peoples around anymore, like they didn't, like we did in the past. And not very many. Were... I mean, I think there's still some, but certainly not as many as there used to be, for sure. Exactly. Yeah, and like again, this is a really successful way of life, and. At this point in history, it it appeared like it was superior in a sense. Like it was when it was running into these quote unquote civilized countries, they couldn't stand up to them. So who's more advanced, right? Like, but I mean, I, I think it, it's kind of um, because the barbarians again they weren't literate. So everything that we know about them is from their enemies for the most part. All right. Well, anyway, so the Vandals have been causing this big problem and. What's caused, you know, the Goths and the Vandals and all these other Germanic tribes to invade the Western Roman Empire is the migration of the Huns. And it appears like they were the ancient Zhongnu in China, who, which was a powerful tribal confederation that dominated for 1300 years. But when China was unified and after the Warring States period, it seems like the power of these tribal confederacy was broken by the Chinese and it caused this big chain reaction of emigration westward. And these Zhongnu, if they are the Huns, then these were a very powerful people that had been rulers and everyone they encountered on the way west, they conquered. It's a big picture thing. You know, like this is a big event that's happening all these people the millions and millions of people are in migration and it seems like it maybe this is just kind of my opinion 
that it was the birth of China as the unified state that caused this. It broke the old systems and it was such a powerful new thing, a unified China, that it caused kind of like a ripple effect throughout the rest of the world that was connected to China. Kind of my sense of it. Okay, interesting. So we have the vandals who have been sort of pushed forward um, by these other folks and and they they come after the goths and then these folks that we're talking about now are going to be showing up here pretty soon on the scene yeah and like it's it's all kind of happening at the same time and we're just talking about like two or three tribes but there's hundreds of these tribes whose names we just don't really know smaller tribes that were absorbed into other tribes you know so it's one of the biggest migrations in human history i think and it was too much for Rome to handle. Like it really was, but yeah. So anyway, so the Huns have pushed all these Germanic tribes into the Roman empire and they had these big natural borders, you know, the, the Rhine and the Danube that they fortified and, you know, they were able to keep this inundation. Uh, they were able to keep it at bay for hundreds of years, but eventually, you know, as their power weakened and as this tide of emigration grew stronger and stronger, it just broke through all the barriers that had worked for hundreds of years, and it flooded all of Europe with a new power, kind of broke the Roman power in a sense. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, and kind of sets the stage for the Middle Ages. But So just to quote from Gibbon here, on the state of the Roman Empire at this time, so the Huns are, are thought to have crossed the Volga around... 337. And so the events that we're going to be talking about are about 100 years later. So in the 420s, 430s, 450s. So the Huns have been around for about a century now. Um, They're a very powerful tribal confederation. They're not united at this point. And Gibbon says this, quote, The Western world was oppressed by the Goths and Vandals, who fled before the Huns. But the achievement of the Huns themselves was not adequate to their power and prosperity. Their victorious hordes had spread from the Volga to the Danube, but the public force was exhausted by discord of independent chieftains. Their valor was idly consumed in obscure and predatory excursions. But in the reign of Attila, the Huns again became the terror of the world. And I shall now describe the character and actions of that formidable barbarian who alternatively insulted and invaded the East and West and urged the rapid downfall of the Roman Empire. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think you can hear that even Gibbon is like kind of into this guy because he is he's very interesting. He's this is a this is a fun uh, historical character, I think. Maybe fun is the wrong word, but like super interesting and um yeah, I mean charismatic. I charismatic. mean all these all these characters that we talk about, Caesar, Quincy Hong, El Tilda Hun, like these are probably really bad dudes if if we want to judge them by our modern morality because they killed a lot of innocent people and did really bad things, but they go down in the history book as great people, right? So, just kind of an interesting dichotomy there, but yeah, Attila is a legendary figure, and what he was able to accomplish in his life, no one has really ever been able to do it again. And 
he seemed to have this charis- charisma with him where he knew how to play the part that people wanted him to play. And it seemed like he was just a natural at that. I also think he was very clever in the art of war and he realized how f- afraid people were of the Huns. And they were different. They looked different. They were scary. And I think he really doubled down on that and made them seem extra scary. So they could have a psychological edge, you know, like it's a very clever and some might say wise leader. And it should be said that in Eastern Europe and in like Turkey, so like Turkey and Hungary and Bulgaria, Attila is one of the most common names. Okay. Yeah. So I guess from the Roman tradition, look on him as a villain, but even in the West and other places, he's not looked on it in that way. Oh, yeah. I don't think he's a villain at all, personally. I mean, I mean, not any more than the other people we fucking exactly. talk about. I mean, they're all villains, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, he's how, it depends on how we define that. But yes, in terms of like when we're comparing him with other people from history, I don't see how you make that case very easily is all. It's, and that's another interesting thing about it is like, how do, how do they earn this reputation over time? Like, this is, this is like thousands of years of demonizing these people, basically. Uh, but there is, you know, there is some, they weren't great either. I'm not. You know. Sure. Well, we, I, I think that we can say like in general, like humans are a lot of things. A lot of times humans aren't great, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, but that doesn't mean that we're terrible. Like, I don't know, compared to what, right? Exactly. I, know, so. I mean, yeah, I think <laughs> if you look at it in a realistic kind of way like that, this is how humans behave. This is how they always behave. So, but so anyway, so our story is going to pick up with the Hunnic kingdom They've basically set up shop in modern day Hungary. And Hungary is a very uh, fertile country on the edge of the Eurasian steppe. It's kind of a perfect place for uh, a nation of hunters and shepherds. And so that's where, you know, that's where the name comes from. And that's where they set up shop. It's called Pannonia is what it was called back then. And they were ruled by a guy named Rugulas or Ruga. And he was the uncle of Attila, and he seems to have been a very kind of forward-thinking leader where, you know, Gibbon had mentioned how a lot of their strength was consumed in these, quote, obscure and predatory excursions. Well, I think Rugulas was able to try and rein in these tribes, get them on the same picture, and, you know, point them in the right direction, and that direction was at Rome because they're weak, and now is the time to strike, basically. And so Rugulus has been making these treaties um, with the Eastern Empire. And so Hungary is across the Danube, so you'd have to cross you know, this big natural border to get into the Roman Empire. You know, the, the Huns had been around for about, a, you know, again, about 100 years at this point, and they had been kind of alternating friends and enemies uh, with the Romans, they're frenemies. And <laughs> yeah, we decided that, that that was the technical term, uh, technical historical term. Frenemies, frenemies, yeah, from the ancient Greek, I believe. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so he's kind of has a deal where he has like emissaries from the West and the East. And like he has them both at his court and they're like arguing why you should invade the other country. Like, don't invade us, invade them. Like, so like you literally have Roman, like, you know, ambassadors at this court lobbying why they should invade the other Roman province. Yeah. And it sounds like this kind of like celebratory air to it where he's like feasting and like listening to these dudes, like argue about 
why their places shouldn't be invaded. Oh, dude, he was eating it up. <laughs> like, I, yeah, that, that's yeah. part of like his personality is that he knew how to. I don't know. I don't. I don't know if twisting the dagger is the right word, but maybe milking the moment or. He definitely had a knack for that. Yeah, I think that he like maybe like symbolic gestures or something like too definitely. So uh, yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah, but we'll get more into Attila when he comes in his own here. But so the, the Huns had been around and they had actually been allies with the Romans in several occasions. There was a usurper that came to power in the West, and a Hunnic army is at sixty thousand men led by Aetius, who is a Roman general who's going to play a big part in the story. They were an ally at times for the Romans, and it seems like a pretty um, faithful ally at times. I guess just take that for what it is. But anyways, we come to this kind of moment where the Huns are really powerful. They know they're really powerful. They know the Romans are weak, and the Romans know they're weak. And they still kind of have to go through this motion. And so they're having this big treaty with the Huns and they're trying to come up with like some kind of honorable way out where you don't have to invade us. We'll just basically give you the money and we can save face. It was kind of one of those deals. And so they decided to give them I think it was like 350 pounds of gold a year, gave them the title of general. Yeah. So this is hilarious. Like, right. Like they're, they're, Huns are basically like, give us money or we're going to invade. And the Romans are like, oh, well, we're going to make you generals and that way we can pay you a salary. <laughs> exactly. <dude>. <laughs> <laughs> like, the Huns are like, okay, cool, whatever. <laughs> yeah, I have the quote here from Gibbon. So, quote, uh, the Romans of the East were not less apprehensive to the arms of Rugulus, which threatened the provinces or even the capital. Some ecclesiastical historians have destroyed the barbarians with lightning and pestilence, but Theodosius was reduced to a much more humble expedient of stipulating an annual payment of 350 pounds of gold and of disguising this dishonorable tribute by the title of general, which the king of the Huns condescended to accept. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Some ecclesiastical historians had destroyed the barbarians with lightning and pestilence. I, I am kind of curious what he's like referencing there. Yeah, I am curious too. There must. It sounds like there's a story there to me. <laughs> anyway, so this guy Rugulus, he's extracting a lot of money from the Romans, and he's threatening to invade. And anyways, but he goes on to die, and. I guess the progress of this treaty was suspended while the Hunnic nation had to kind of figure out who was going to succeed. And eventually the throne goes to his brother's sons. And so his two nephews, Attila and Bleda. Uh, so they succeeded to kind of like a co-rulership kind of deal. I'm not exactly sure how that worked. How does it usually go when there's co-rulers? Yeah, it's my friend. Exactly. Um, so Blada was killed in a hunting accident. <clears throat> Which sucks because Blada is such a dope name. It is a great name. And um, his death was, I guess, perhaps very suspicious. But yes, the official story is that he died in a hunting accident. And Attila becomes kind of like the sole ruler of the Hunnic nation. Now, at this time, they decide to meet with the Roman ambassadors from Constantinople to try and hammer out this treaty that his uncle has been working on. And so they meet in, in this spacious plane, but 
Attila and Bleda, Bleda's still alive, they refuse to dis... <laughs> Re- yeah, Retcon, retcon sorry. <laughs> they refuse to dismount. And I guess it was more of a Scythian tradition that it wasn't like they were trying to talk down to the Romans. It was that men should talk on horseback or something like that. Like, this is how men should talk when we're on horse mm-hmm. next to each other. Like, it was, we're not going to do diplomacy on your terms anymore. We're doing it on our terms is kind of what it seemed like. And they're, you know, the Roman ambassadors, you know, they didn't really have a choice. They were basically going to make peace no matter what. So anyways. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they're basically dictating the terms of this treaty. And like each, yeah. Yeah. They're there to pay protection money, not make a treaty. Exactly. Sort of, right? Pretty like, much. Dude. Yes. So the next big thing that happens, though, is that the East and the West, the two Roman empires, they try to join forces for one of the few times in the in the latter days of it to retake Carthage and retake North Africa from the Vandals. Because it, okay, because they probably wanted that food supply. Back. Yeah, it was just such an important province to them, to both empires. And so they fitted out this huge fleet and they were massing in Sicily. So the, the Eastern Empire had sent basically all their troops from you know Greece and Eastern Europe to Sicily to fight the Vandals. And during this time, somehow Gezerich is in contact with Attila. And he tells Attila that there's no armies defending the borders. There's nothing. And so, and just to remind everybody, Gezerich is the head of the Vandals who's set up shop. Exactly. Yeah. So the Romans are uniting for like one of the few times ever, the East and West to take out Gezerich. And, but he calls on Attila. And so while the Eastern Roman army is away, Attila decides to invade Greece and invade the East. And his nominal justification for this was this bishop. And this there was like this bishop that was going into his side of the Danube and preaching, proselytizing, and sowing discontent is what they said. <laughs> so yeah, so Attila like invaded. And this is his justification. He's very much like Stalin, where he always had a justification for everything he did. So there was always kind of this veneer of legitimacy and legality to everything he did. There was always some excuse or some reason. But anyway, so this bishop, you know, he's a very shady character, it turns out. He's captured by the Huns. And um, uh, Gibbon says something to the effect that he didn't possess the spirit of a martyr. And so he (laughs) he went over to the Huns and actually helped them invade like his own city where he was the bishop. (laughs) so anyways that's the justification for the invading this ridiculous justification of this bishop who is actually working with them it turns out maybe like you know it's just a bunch of bs but well yeah of course like that's what that's what we see with attila like you know he's got this like he's got this political savvy he he really does yeah yeah it's not like it's not the the real story is like we're doing this because we can and we want to we're strong and you're weak right it the it's that but you know the this bishop sowing discontent and these like you know social reasons that sounds a lot better than like give us your shit <laughs> yeah it, yeah exactly like it's so we call him a barbarian but you know the way they're behaving diplomatically this you know these guys are pretty um adroit oh, well they're they're much better 
I don't know if state statement is the wrong statesman is the wrong word, I guess, maybe, but they're much better at like adept at uh, being leaders than a lot of the people that we see in, in Rome. Absolutely. Right? And like, so a lot of what we know from the Huns is from a Roman embassy or yeah, embassy that was sent to them to negotiate one of these peace treaties. And that's kind of one of our only insights into like the inner court of Attila and his personality and stuff. Um, so it, it's very, the sources are very minimal, but it does seem like this guy, while it might not be recorded, he was known throughout like the whole world, basically. Like he, he's, his fame was legendary at his time. And he took his Hunnic armies into places that had never been conquered to our knowledge, at least in recorded you know history. He took his Hunnic armies into Siberia, into Scandinavia, into islands in the Baltic, and subjugated or united, however you want to look at it, all these different tribes. And these were tribes that had never been united, united before, and they've never been united since. And so it's kind of this unique moment in history where this big latent power that has always existed in the steppes, in Siberia, in the north, when it when it did come together, it was incredibly powerful and it changed the world. Now, it didn't last. It was a fleeting empire because it didn't endure after the death of Attila. But it, it's just a really interesting moment in history where all these barbarians, well, when they come together and, and under a, a leader, a competent leader like this, they are forced to be reckoned with. Maybe instead of barbarians, we should just be calling them fierce nomads or something. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> Seems, but that seems more like of a closer description of of what these folks were like. I don't know. It's definitely, yeah, it's definitely kind of a loaded term. Um, and like some of these barbarian tribes, these names, these are the modern names of European countries, like the Burgundians, the Thurgindians, the Bavarians, the Batavians, the like you name it. All of these tribes, these are like regions in Europe. Like so, mm -hmm. like it's kind of interesting that they stayed you know and they became <laughs> they became europeans and yeah i don't know i mean yeah it's it's interesting i mean so it's all semantics obviously i'm sorry to keep getting hung up on it but it just i mean the term the term barbarian like it isn't it like a greek word for describing people that don't speak greek and it sounds like people are saying bar bar yeah. to the greek uh, yeah I, I believe like, that's, that's the origin of, of it like, yeah that's kind of gross right it was definitely like, kind of yeah it was a pejorative term there's no doubt about it like yeah it's kind of gross but yeah for sure i mean now it's used in different contexts now in modern eras I exactly like so just kind of on this subject you were talking about the magyar people earlier and when they invaded what you know modern day hungary people called them the huns as a derogatory insult to them but that but they embraced it and okay. they well, yeah, we're about to get to those guys here. I mean, they claim that they had the sword of Attila into the Middle Ages, you know, like that. So they were they were keeping this legacy going for hundreds and hundreds of years later. So, okay, well, yes, I'm glad you brought up the sword because we haven't gotten we there haven't yet. gotten that there was yet. another yeah. that was another cool thing about Attila is that he has this like I don't know magic sword, I guess, which is pretty dope. He has an emblem of heaven that legitimizes his claim to the dominion of the earth. <laughs> <laughs> 
So do you want me to go ahead and tell? I, I did a little bit of research because um, absolutely, dude. mythological swords and all that shit. It's very much my jam. Yeah, this is one of the most interesting parts of the whole story. So absolutely. Hell yeah. So the source that I'm going to use right here, this is from uh, historynaked.com. And th these are legends anyway. So, you know, take absolutely. them with yeah. as much salt as you like. Um, but here is what uh, History Naked has to say about this topic and some good stuff. When Attila was a young boy, his mother would have told him the story of an ancient Scythian sword that was forged by the gods of Scythian kings. During his childhood, the sword of God was that of legend since it had been lost, and the children would often hear the elders exclaim, look for it, search for it. He who finds God's sword will rule the world. So we don't know or not if, if uh, Attila might have heard that as a child. <laughs> um, so the sword of God, called the sword of Mars and the sword of Attila, was forged from the iron of a meteorite by the gods so that the Scythian kings would have the power to conquer all nations. Legend said that the sword was won by the Huns and the um, Magyars after the two joined forces to defeat the Scythians. The Huns wanted to move west while the Magyars wanted to remain, so they decided to give the sword to a blind man that would spin the sword seven times and toss it. And if the sword faced west, then the Huns would take it on their travels. And if it faced east, then it would stay with the Magyars. As a twist of fate, a gust of wind blew on the seventh spin and carried the sword west and out of sight. And that was how the sword of God was lost to the world. That is until Attila found it. <laughs> but here's how that happened. <laughs> um, the sword, okay, so here's the story of how Attila came to possess the sword of God, is that a shepherd was watching his animals grazing, and one of the animals was injured, and he wasn't sure, the shepherd wasn't sure why, and um, he tra he traced the uh, trail of blood back to a sword, and he found the sword in the grass, and um, he brought it to Attila, um, and Attila basically uh, said, oh, yeah, hell yeah, thank you. You know what this is? This is the sword of God. <laughs> you found it. <laughs> I mean, so, obviously, right? <laughs> obviously. Okay, so I'm going to read you a little bit more from uh, History Naked here. Even though the Sword of God was coveted, swords were not typically weapons for the Huns, as they preferred bows. The Huns were so good at using bows that they were able to shoot while riding horses and in full retreat, but they were not typical bows. Each bow was made of seven bone plaques used to siphon the structure, and the bows were made asymmetrically, which is thought to be because they could increase the size of the bow, allowing for easier use while riding horses. This unique construction allowed the Huns' arrows to fly farther than their enemies, giving them an advantage during battle. The Huns also carried axes for close combat once their arrows had been you know, used up or they were in close range. Yeah, so the sword, it would have been an uncommon thing, and so he might have like stood out among the rest of the people because he's got this like big-ass sword and everybody else has these axes and bows and shit. So there you have it. That is about the sword of Attila. It's really interesting. So like he, you know, I guess that, you know, this is an ancient religion, religious tradition, spiritual tradition. I'm not sure the right verbiage, but this adoration of the naked sword. And I guess this was practiced in a lot of different places in ancient Scythia, in the ancient steppes, going back to like before Herodotus. Herodotus describes these things. So this is an ancient, ancient religion that he's kind of like tapping into and you know, getting some legitimacy from it. And it worked like it actually worked. People thought he had the sword of heaven and that 
his conquest had this like mark of divinity to it that he was the champion of, of heaven. Like he was able to convince people that. So on the sword being presented to Attila, Gibbon says this quote, that magnanimous or rather artful prince accepted with pious gratitude, this celestial favor. And as the rightful possessor of the sword of Mars asserted his divine and indefeasible claim to the dominions of the earth. The favorite of Mars soon acquired a sacred character, which rendered his conquest more easy and more permanent. And the barbarian princes confessed, in a language of devotion or flattery, that they could not presume to gaze, with a steady eye, on the divine majesty of the king of the Huns. End quote. (laughs) (laughs) Very cool. Yeah. And I mean, so just a real quick note about the name, uh, the sword of Mars. Um, That's something that the Romans would have called it. Mars is the god of war and the Roman uh, pantheon. Right. I believe it. Ares in the Greek. um, Yes. I forget what the Egyptian version of it is. Um, But yeah, anyways, yeah, that that is a, (laughs) that's not what they called it. I think they just called it the sword of God or, or I I don't, I really don't know what they called their deity. Um, You know, they don't, we don't sure. really have written records from these people, so yeah, we don't have a lot of written records about about their things. So yeah, it's there's so much mystery surrounding this story, which is another reason why it's probably so tantalizing. Absolutely. Too. Now, so on the death of Bleda, his brother, quote, his brother Bleda, who reigned over a considerable part of the nation, was compelled to resign his scepter and his life. Yet this cruel act. <clears throat> accident was attributed to a supernatural impulse and the vigor with with which attila wielded the sword of mars convinced the world that it had been reserved alone for his invincible arm (laughs) okay okay (laughs) so just yeah more so blade is dead you know anyways um so at this stage in the story the eastern roman empire is being invaded by attila and obviously they they really can't stand up to him. They try to recall all of their armies. They have armies in Sicily to fight the Vandals. They have armies in Persia to try and protect the frontiers. They have armies in Armenia. Uh, all those armies are recalled to Greece, to the capital, to try and defend it from Attila. And th- there's three battles where the Roman army of the East is utterly vanquished. And after that, the Roman Empire has to sue for peace. And they basically have to surrender to the Goth, I mean, to the Huns. They come up with this really intricate peace surrender process where the emperor of Rome is going to have to send his ambassadors to the Hunnic court and negotiate the terms of the surrender, basically. And this is where we get the Priscus account. And so there was three people sent on this expedition. There was like a, a diplomat. There was like a, a someone who was set there to record the events. That was Priscus, and then there was a translator who was helping you know helping them speak. But anyways, it's a really interesting story where the you know the Huns send their ambassadors to Constantinople, and they're asking for these hilarious things. You know, Attila wants you know one of his favorites to get a, a wealthy Roman wife, and he thinks that the emperor had promised him this, and that the emperor is going back on his word. So he sends his emissaries there to demand, you know, this wife. And then uh, the Roman amb- ambassadors have to follow the Hunnic 
ambassadors back to the camp and they take this really circuitous route where they're going all over the place through all these cities that the Huns had destroyed. Just like show these ambassadors the destruction that the Huns had wrought on them and how defeated they actually were. And when they actually get to the camp, they try and set up, you know, they try and set up their tents and Attila comes and says, no, 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 you have to move. You're blocking my view. Their encampment was um, offensively located to the uh, natural beauty of the environment. And so they asked them to move. And so they're, they're just making the, these ambassadors go through all of these hilarious, you know, humiliating kind of uh, hoops to jump through. And they really don't have any choice but to do it. And this is the kind of stuff that the Romans used to do to the, quote, barbarians, like the, the shoes on the other foot now. And Attila's milking it. He's really liking it. Yeah, I wonder if this is where they learned this stuff from, right? That's interesting. But yes, the Romans were super into that, like, you know, display of difference of power, right? Like, Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean... Yeah. I guess that they didn't have a monopoly on that at all, though. <laughs> so, it's a pretty yeah. common thing, yeah. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty common thing. So anyways... <laughs> For, like so this account um it's actually a really interesting expedition because the translator was actually involved in a conspiracy to assassinate Attila and the co-conspirator spilled the beans to Attila and so this and this translator is at his court and Attila knows that he's been sent to organize his his death and he doesn't spring this on him until much later and it's just another one of these kind of, it reminded me of, of Saddam Hussein, actually, like where he had this conference where he's going to announce all the traitors and everybody has to sit in this room and he's going to read names off one by one. It kind of reminded me of that. Like, so like, yeah, he knew this guy was plotting his death, but he entertained him the whole time. He treated him really well. And then he went to the emperor and was like, how could you do this to me? Like, we're brothers. We're kings. Like, you've disgraced yourself. He referred to the Eastern Emperor as his slave after this incident. And he pardoned the assassin. He, through his, you know, his grace and his um, magnanimous, you know, chivalry, he, he was able to ignore this slight. And he made the Romans pay a bunch of money to get this guy back. And they didn't want to pay it. They didn't even, they would have much rather had this guy just die. But Anyway, so it was just another kind of oh, hilarious thing. Well, that's, so, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, is politically savvy, right? Very, like... very much so. And let's see if I can find some more Gibbon quotes on it. So on the Hunnic court, the Huns might be provoked to insult the misery of their slaves or whom they exercise a despotic command over, but their manners were not susceptible of a refined system of oppression. and. The effort of courage and diligence were often recompensed by the gift of freedom. The historian Priscus, whose embassy is the source of curious instruction, was accosted in the camp of Attila by a stranger who saluted him in the Greek language, but whose dress and figure displayed the appearance of a wealthy Scythian. In the siege of Viminecium, he had lost, according to his own account, his fortune and liberty and became a slave of Onegesius, one of Attila's faithful servants. But through his faithful service against the Romans, he was gradually raised to the rank of native Hun, to whom he was attached by domestic pledges of a new wife and several children. 
the spoils of war had restored and improved his private property. He was admitted to the table of his former lord, and the apostate Greek blessed the hour of his captivity, since it had been the introduction to a happy and independent state. End quote. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's very interesting. So yeah, they're, they did have slaves, and they, they were like dicks to them, it, it said, but they didn't always stay slaves, <laughs> like might have been the case in other places. Yeah, he says they had this, or they, they did not have a refined system of oppression. <laughs> sure. I love how he states that. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, how could you have a refined system of oppression without civilization, maybe, right? I don't know. Yeah. Do you need civilization to have a refined system of oppression? I suspect I suspect that you might. I don't know. Well, and this was kind of one of the things that made Attila so successful is that he was kind to his enemies, you know? He he was the bigger man and Sure. Um like that that kind of high ground like that but at the same time he was savvy enough like he he was but he was also making all of these symbolic gestures too right like he's playing both sides i mean yeah he really is yeah he he definitely is the kind of person who can have a foot in both camps and sort of like play it both ways like he really he's kind of a like almost like a shapeshifter a little bit yeah and it it was said that he was a powerful magician he was rumored to have powers i don't believe it (laughs) kind of sounds like it yeah like (laughs) and so i guess how this confederation worked is that it was kind of like a pyramid scheme so the first tribe that they kind of like assimilated was the Alani, which was like an Iranian-speaking tribe that lived in the steppes, kind of Germanic-Iranian. And they were the first ones incorporated into the Hunnic nation in their flight westward. And they formed one of the inner circles of nobility within the Hunnic Empire. And so it was almost like the first nations that were incorporated into this thing, well, they were at the top of it. Uh, you know, the Huns are at the very top and the first people they subjugated are right below them. And then they're above the people that were next. And so, well, yeah, so you only got to be at the bottom until we conquer some more guys and then they'll be paying you tribute. And before you know it, you'll be just as rich as me. <laughs> exactly. Look, <laughs> yeah, look what happens. So anyways, that's kind of like the method of the, of Attila's kind of uh, empire, I guess. But I love that pyramid schemes are that old. <laughs> I bet it's even older than that. Yeah, I bet it's even older than that, actually. <laughs> Probably. Very fun. But anyway, so the the Huns have basically conquered the, the Eastern Roman Empire. They're, I think the tribute that they set was like five times the original. Like, So they were paying them, I think, like 2,000 pounds of gold a year. Like, it's just a crazy sum of gold. And at this point, Attila is starting to look to other places because, you know, he's already kind of, he's milking the East for everything they got. And um, start to look westward at the, at the Western Empire, which, by the way, is also looking incredibly weak, you know? Yeah, I'm curious, just real quick, like, do we know where that gold, like, was going? Do we know, like, what he did with it? Or, like, other than, like, pay his troops or whatever? I, I don't know what, what kind of system they had. You know, it, it does seem like it was distributed in some manner, because in the Priscus expedition, they are hosted by... Uh, a matron in the camp uh, and the women in the camp, by the way, the, the, the royal women had a lot of clout in the hunted camp. And when they're, pull- they're they're in a tent and they're pulling out their dinnerware and it's freaking straight gold and silver, like pure gold and silver people in a tent who are eating off the ground. They have like pure gold plates and shit. So <laughs> okay. yeah, 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 dude. So I think it was distributed amongst kind of the, the nation. 
it's a tremendous amount of wealth. Like I, I'm trying to picture what 2000 pounds of gold a year looks like. And it's, it's really hard to get that much gold together. Like, it, yeah. And I'm just like, yeah, like, what do you do with all that gold? I don't know. <laughs> like, I, I really don't know. Especially, yeah, I mean, because it's, I guess it's it's basically currency, right? Yeah. I mean, you can you can use it to make shit out of, but it's, they use it mostly as currency, right? It, it was money, yeah. I mean, in, in some okay. places, like in India, it was more valuable as um, like an aesthetic or ornamental object or commodity. So its its monetary value was actually higher in India because of its artistic qualities and its other kind of magical qualities. But for most places in the world, it was because it was good money, and you know you could trade. And the Huns and a lot of these other you know quote unquote barbarians, they had acquired a lot of tastes for the products of civilized society, things like wine, uh, you know, clothes, furniture, nice stuff like that, you know. So, they they wanted this stuff and sure. gold was a way to get it, you know. Okay, yeah, hell yeah. Where do you think all the gold is now? Other than I know we, some is in Fort Knox. I'm guessing the Vatican probably has a fuck Dude, ton of I, it. I but... don't know. I really don't. Now we don't know where Attila's <laughs> grave is. Just like Alaric, it was a secret and they mm-hmm. deposited a lot of the wealth into this grave and it hasn't been found. So that we, that know, we know of. of. Yeah, that we know of. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, tremendous amount of wealth. And so you got to think this is a really, really, really powerful empire that's emerging here. They are taking on the superpower of the world, basically, at least in Europe, and they're dominating them and they're uniting all these people. You know, so like this is um, it's a big kind of new thing in history. And the Romans were not used to dealing with the Huns. And we mentioned their their weaponry a little bit earlier and their tactics that they use and they were cavalry warriors. They fought entirely on horseback. And for the Roman army, that was having a horse was like something that like knights had. Like it was a, if you had a horse, you were a member of the equestrian class, which was like a kind of like the predecessor of knightly orders. Like, so having, okay. yeah, having a horse was a big deal in the Roman army, but in the Hunnic army, you had 200,000 guys or more all on horses. And it was just really difficult for the Romans to fight this kind of army. It's difficult for anybody to fight it, really. But sure, yeah. And it, they don't, you know, it's just it's a different form of warfare. Like it's it's kind of like a um, like waves crashing on rocks, where you just get wave after wave of these horsemen coming in, firing their bows and retreating, and you can't chase them. You can't go after them because if you do, they collapse around you. They have all these, you know, elaborate tactics to draw you out of formation. That's what they want you to do. Like so. Well, yeah, it's like the the difference between the the queen chess piece and like the some of the other ones, right? That mobility yeah. is, means a lot, Absolutely. right? And they could project it to like anywhere in the battlefield, and and like the nation itself could move at tremendous speeds. And for the Romans, they just had never encountered anybody like this. And again, this is a powerful group that had possibly ruled East Asia for thirteen hundred years. So it kind of makes sense that the you know that they would be up to the task of taking on the Romans. But anyway, so we get to a point in the story where, you know, Attila has made peace with the Eastern Empire. He's had this hilarious peace conference with these uh, ambassadors, and that's where we learn, you know, know a lot about the Huns. But anyways, at this time, well, he receives a curious present, and it is a ring from a Roman princess named Honoria. 
How romantic. Yes. <laughs> and so Honoria is an interesting character at this time in Roman history. So the, the family of Theodosius the Great, who we mentioned in the last episode, we haven't really discussed him in depth, but he was the last great Roman emperor. And his family had this era of clout because, you know, of his name, you know. And, but we get to the point where his two sons were so bad and then their sons were so bad that the women in the family basically have to kind of take over. And they're at least more competent at this point than a lot of the male emperors. And so Honoria is in this really kind of interesting place where her mother, Placidia, has been raised to basically empress. She's basically running the state. She doesn't like technically have that title. Her husband is like theoretically in charge of the state, but she chose a husband to marry and put him in charge. Like, so anyways, Princess Honoria has been raised to the rank of Augusta. And that means that she's basically divine. And when you're divine, you can't have a normal life, right? Like you can't, um, you're God, you're God, right? (laughs) Apparently, I mean, I don't know. Can't you do whatever you want? (laughs) Well, I, I don't know. But so anyways, so... She ended up, I guess she was very beautiful, and she ended up having this affair with her chamberlain. And this was a big kind of scandal, and she got pregnant. And her mother was super, super pissed at her. And she almost had her killed, but they eventually had her exiled. And But before she was exiled, in a desperate state, she sent this ring to Attila kind of like as like come rescue me kind of thing like that's kind of what it seemed like like i'm a it's a very kind of middle-aged tropey cliche thing of this damsel in distress kind of thing and yeah and this is before we i'm wondering if we see this i'm sure it's it's happened before in history like history is there's so much history before this time that we're talking about i'm sure this has come up before but this is like this classic theme that we'll see and, and this same kind of area start to get really popular yeah. like a couple hundred years later. Is yeah, that right? and th- as far as I know, this is kind of the first time you see this kind of, I don't know, courtly love or chival- chivalrous love. And who knows if it's legitimate or not. Like he apparently, I don't think he ever met the Princess Honoria, but he apparently was super in love with her and demanded that her honor be restored. And <laughs> he's a chill. Yeah. This is another, yeah, this is another gift, right? This is another sort of Mars mm-hmm. moment, right? This ring. So he gets this ring from Honoria and he writes back to the East, the Eastern Empress, Honoria's mother, and says, okay, I'll, I accept her. I will marry her. And um, I'll take like half of the empire as her dowry. And they're like, no, 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 no. That was not an actual official diplomatic proposal. She just sent you that. She's actually engaged to a senator that's like 50 50 years older than her now. And so, yeah, that was just a joke. Don't worry about it. And he's like, hmm, yeah, no. (laughs) And so he he decides to invade France, or modern-day France, ancient Gaul. And the nominal reason for this is his adoration for the Princess Honoria and wanting to rescue her from her exile and captivity. Well... It's just as good an excuse as the bishop thing, right? <laughs> I guess so, yeah. I guess so. And yeah, I don't really know the details of their relationship. I think there were letters exchanged. I'm not sure if it went any further than that. But anyways, so he decides to invade France. And um, well, 
the Western Roman Empire is not any better prepared to defend themselves than the East was. And they're basically completely caught off guard. And about half of France at this point is ruled by the Goths around Toulouse. So Southern France and Orleans was another big city of theirs. And when Attila invaded France or Gaul, he was not anticipating fighting the Goths. He thought he was going to be fighting the Romans because the Romans and Goths hate each other. They fought this horrible war. There's no way they're going to team up against us, Mm. but they did. And you had this guy named Aetius who it's very much like Stilicho. Now, he he was a little bit more Roman than Stilicho. I think he was from a noble family, and he was a governor of Britain, and he's called the patrician. But he spent a large por- uh, portion of his life, first as a hostage and later just as a companion in the Hunnic court. He was very friendly with Attila. He was a good friend of him, and he was basically raised by the Huns in their court. It's kind of like a hostage. You know, we talked about this kind of arrangement that was very common in the ancient world, exchanging of hostages. And he was one of those hostages who, who, who kind of understood the Huns. And he was able to raise a big army of Romans and all these different Germanic tribes to resist the invasion of Attila. And so we kind of get to this big battle and it's called the Battle of Shalom or the Battle of the Catalonian Fields. And when Attila invades France, he apparently has every nation from the Danube to the Volga, 2,000, 3,000 miles of territory with probably hundreds and hundreds of groups in it. He's been able to unite this big chunk. And there they all are on one side of the river. And on the other side of the river are all the other nations in Europe, the Franks, the Saxons, the Romans, and the Visigoths. And... Gibbon says that the whole thing had the appearance of a civil war, where on both sides there were similar banners. So people knew each other. They were very familiar with each other. Attila was very familiar with Asians, but yet they're ranged against each other. And this is probably one of the biggest battles in history, and we don't we don't really know that much about it. Um, there wasn't any historians there. There was a historian who interviewed uh, Gothic veterans of the battle, and they compared it to the greatest battles of their mythology and said it was an awful event that was um, worthy of retelling, basically. So it it kind of has a a mythic kind of feel to it. Make sense? Hell yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, totally. And so, yeah, so this is the Catalonian fields. And this is outside um, the modern city of Chalon. And this is like wine country, or I'm sorry, uh, champagne country of France. This is um, really fertile, really beautiful part of the world that is inundated with this massive, massive war. And so we get two armies, one on one side of the river, one on the other. And Attila has ranged his armies in a way where his most faithful, I guess, soldiers or like the most trustworthy group in his confederation was the Ostrogoths, who was, you know, kind of the other half of the Gothic nation that stayed across the Danube. That didn't cross. They crossed for a little bit, but then they went back. But they were fighting with the Huns, and they were right across from the Visigoths. And so you had the two Gothic nations against each other. This river crossing, um, not not a not a big river, very shallow kind of stream. Just really interesting to see these, these Gothic nations that were so powerful, and here they are fighting each other under these banners of Romans and and Huns. And yeah, no, it is interesting. Okay, so how does this battle go down? Okay, so. 
Attila was a very brave soldier and he took the vanguard. He, he was in the very front and he thought that the most dangerous part of the Roman army was Theodoric and the Visigoths. Theodoric was the king of the Visigoths. And so he thought that we're not going to attack them head on. We'll put their brother tribe or their sister tribe, the Ostrogoths, right across the river and they can keep each other busy. The decisive action is going to be in the center. We're going to attack the Roman center with a, a, a kind of like a blitzkriegy all-in attack. like, And they broke through the center. And they decided to swing to the left wing and try and envelop the Visigothic army. But the Visigoths were not surrounded. And by nightfall, Attila and his kind of vanguard, you know, they had broken through the center of the lines, but they were stranded on the other side of the river. And they didn't win. They had not won the battle like they were anticipating. And they basically had to like retreat at night just to survive this battle. This was like a Caesar moment for Attila where he lost this battle and his army could have easily been destroyed and he could have easily been killed, but he's able to get away. And, you know, so, but at the same time, Aetius and the half barbarian patrician and Theodoric, the king of the Goths, Visigoths, well, they've, they've united and they, they've defeated this invincible conqueror with the sword of heaven. And Attila's kind of stopped there, but he's not defeated. Like he, he's, he reminds me of Caesar in that way, where this is one of the biggest battles in history. The legend goes that they're still digging up arrowheads and shit from this. Like, yeah, isn't there some shit about like the sky being completely blacked out with arrows or something? Like, well, that was actually from one of their expeditions to Persia. Oh, okay. Which we haven't <laughs> talked about, but yeah, that that was different. But um, no, like this is thought to be probably the biggest battle of this era of this age, and. It was it was a defeat for Attila, and so it's like the Romans won the battle. Like they like so, you had generals like Aetius commanding Roman power to you know by hook or by crook stand up to a guy like Attila and defeat them. Like so, the Romans won this battle, and Attila had to retreat. He actually stayed in his camp for three nights because he after the battle was won, all the Germanic allies of Aetius and the Romans they started going back home. They didn't want to stay there any longer than they had to. And Attila thought it was some kind of trick or stratagem. And so he stayed in his camp for three days until all of the other armies were gone. And then he retreated back across the Rhine into Hungary. Everybody thought this was the end. This this is the end of Attila, but it wasn't the end. <laughs> Interesting. So do you think he just like, he was like, there's no way they're just going to like, let me go. Right. Like, I think he, yeah, I think he was utterly shocked that he was able to escape. He's like, I wouldn't just let them go. <laughs> Are they just going to let me yeah, go? <laughs> it, it reminds me a lot of uh, Caesar and Pompey, where Pompey defeated Caesar at that battle, and but Caesar got away. You know, Pompey didn't chase yeah. him. It's kind of yeah. one of those things. But so, anyways, Attila he gets back to to Hungary and kind of blows over this whole thing. And in the meantime, very similar thing happens to Aetius, the patrician that happened to Stilicho. He becomes a threat to the emperor and he is assassinated. He gets too competent and he becomes a threat. And so he's yeah. assassinated, right? And he's a really interesting character that I'm just kind of brushing over just for time's sake. But like another way of saying Aetius is another way uh, it's pronounced. But this is actually one of my childhood heroes when I learned that he defeated Attila. Like it's obscure. Oh, really? Yeah, it's like the most obscure childhood hero. <laughs> <That's> so <laughs> I weird. Know. I love it. I know. <laughs> 
All right. Well, yeah, let's talk a little bit about this fool. I just couldn't believe that this guy was so competent that he could defeat such a, a legendary figure like that. And so she was like, why, why, did, why didn't the Romans, why did they lose? Like, well, it wasn't about the battlefield or about generals. It was other things, you know. It was like, yeah, it was their insane corruption because anytime you had somebody fucking competent, they got murdered. Yeah. It's at least that's how it seems to me. I mean, that's, <laughs> and that's basically what happened, you know, and um, very similar to uh, Stilco. And Aetius had all these barbarian allies, like, you know, um, Theodoric, the king of the Goths, who was killed in the battle, by the way. Um, they, they weren't loyal to the emperor. Fuck no. Aetius came to them and made them an argument and said, look, the Huns, they chased you out of your homeland. Now they're back. You can side with us and try and stop them, get some revenge, put them in their place, or we can fall one by one by one, and they're always going to chase you out of this land that you conquered you. I mean, it's a pretty yeah, good argument. Makes and sense. Yeah. So t- together we're stronger, and they were. But after the death of Aetius, you know, nobody wanted to um, have anything to do with these emperors, you know. And so Attila decides to invade Italy again, basically. Very similar to Alaric and Stilicho. Aetius is out of the picture. Attila says, well, you know what? Our invasion of France didn't work out very well, but I'm still in love with the Princess Honoria and, <laughs> and I still want her dowry, and I'm going to come rescue her. So he decides to invade Italy <laughs> and the nominal reason is again, the Princess Honoria. And there are, again, no armies to stop him. Um, uh, Aetius is dead at this point, and um, basically marching unimpeded through Italy, ca- causing a tremendous amount of you know destruction in his path. But he gets to the city of Rome, and the legend is that Pope Leo the Great went out there and talked with him. And we don't know what was said, but the Huns turned around and they left. They went back. So some people think that he bribe them, which is a very, very real possibility. (laughs) (laughs) That that story makes sense to me. Other people think that his aura of dignity and this kind of way way that he carried himself, that Attila respected it, and that he did not respect any of these other Roman rulers, any, any of the politicians. But here was this kind of holy man who wasn't afraid of him. And um, so that's kind of the legend that we get that Pope Leo the Great said something to Attila that he decided to turn around and leave. Do you think Pope Leo was a magician too? Yes. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes, I do. But he was not as successful as Attila because he tried the same trick with the vandals and it didn't work. Okay. Which is kind of a side note, but. Well, interesting though. Like, so is there like precedent of the vandals being bribable though like the like Attila's crew was, you know, like like the definitely. Um, like definitely, Attila was definitely and but and it like Gezerek had a very similar kind of veneer of like legitimacy that Attila had and he had all these roman princesses you know that he's constantly marrying and shit and he did not treat them well though like there was one that um he sent her back like super disfigured and like people that's yeah up. people in rome were pissed about it like it was one of the big yeah that's really yeah one of up. the big impetuses for war was how he treated this princess and yeah i could see that 
I guess. Yeah. But anyway, so Attila turns back and he leaves Italy. Now, he probably left with a lot of money. <clears throat> um, we don't really know, but. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and, but he didn't have the princess. He did not ever get the princess Honoria. And that's too bad. So he gets. Maybe it's not, though. We don't know. No, if she would have had a better well, life than... Well, here's what ends up happening to him. So he gets back to the Hunnic encampment in Hungary, and he takes on a Germanic wife. I think she was a Gothic woman. I don't have her name here. And he had, like, a bunch of wives. Oh, right? he had a bunch he, of wives. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. And they... um, His his primary wife, Sursa, was, like, a almost, like, one of the main rulers of the, of the Hunnic Empire. Like, she had a lot of clout. So, yeah, she she was very elevated in their society, but he had all these other wives, too. You know, he had like a bunch. But so anyways, he he marries this Germanic like um, princess and he dies on it on his wedding night in the in the marriage bed. Interesting. Yeah. So we're not exactly sure what happened. <laughs> but I mean, we could say that possibly she could have been an assassin. Possibly, dude. There's a lot of people that think that. Okay, well, that's interesting. And there was a lot of bad blood between the Germanic peoples and the Huns. And um, after Attila's death, his empire disintegrates like rapidly. One of his sons like tries to keep it together for like 10 or 20 years, but he just can't do it. And the Huns just kind of vanish. They kind of, as quick as they came, they they disappear again. Like, And then they're just gone. Like, we don't really know what happened to them, like. Just because there's no written records, Because there's no written records, yeah. And I a little given quote on that. Let's see. But the extent of his empire affords the only remaining evidence of the number and importance of his victories. And the Scythian monarch, however ignorant of the value of science and philosophy, might perhaps lament that his illiterate subjects were destitute of the art which could perpetuate the memory of his exploits. Yeah, so good. So it basically, Gibbon is saying that like if Attila would probably be bummed out because if people would have been around that could have written, then his legends would have lived on better. Absolutely, and just controlling the narrative like that is very powerful, right? And as a historical mm-hmm. great like him, if he would have a little bit more influence on oh, the narrative, can you imagine what could have come out of that camp in terms of like propaganda and stories and writing and stuff. Like, oh yeah. The flair for style it probably would have. I don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Like, and all these amazing conquests that he had in the barbarian world that we only know about them from these like Icelandic and Norse sagas and Edas. Like, so. Yeah. Cause I mean, that's what's so cool. Okay, sorry to keep bringing Caesar up, but like, I mean, Caesar like writ a bunch of his own shit. I know, right? right? So imagine like, if Caesar hadn't written yeah. that. Like, it, well, yeah. Well, if imagine if Attila had written some cool yeah. stuff like that, or if like, the right? or if the the Gaelic people wrote the history of Caesar instead of himself, you know, like that. Sure. Oh, yeah. Totally. It would have been really different. And maybe they, maybe there is one somewhere, right? Like it's I don't possible. know. I mean, but, like, it's very possible. I'm, this is very far outside of my area of expertise. So, like later so. groups, um, like the Mongols, who are similar to the Huns, when they invaded China, they hired Chinese historians to record everything you know and they did and they took amazing records you know so i think maybe they learned from from the huns that you can you can use the tools of your enemies to perpetuate your own glory right sure i mean technology is technology right absolutely 
And so it just like just to kind of wrap it up a little bit though, like so you had this really powerful group of people that just kind of burst onto the scene. They united all these different groups, fought some big battles, and then they're just gone. And it's just kind of like this shadow of of the ground they tr- you know trod over. Where we have their footprints, but that's it. We don't know who they are. We don't know them. Like it's their mystery to us still. And it's just weird that such a powerful and successful and dominant group could be so mysterious today. And but they are. And there's a lot of controversy still. But who are these people? Where did they come from? Where did they go? You know. And all these people want to claim their descendants. The you know people in China want to claim it. People in Hungary want to claim it. People in Mongolia want to claim it. So it's it's kind of a legendary figure and i bet if we could ask attila he would be okay with everybody claiming ancestry i think so dude and <laughs> like yes i'm i'm the father of all of you <laughs> it's one thing I, I didn't really get to it but he did kind of see himself as the king of all barbarians so any anybody who lived in a tent they should look to him as his as their leader and not through, not necessarily through fear, but through respect and adoration. It's just kind of an inner, I don't know if anybody's ever really tried to do that before, like unite, quote, the barbarian world. Certainly really hasn't happened since then. But, you know, it, it was a really powerful moment in history. It didn't last, but it was really powerful when it existed. Hell yeah. Okay, so there was one thing that we haven't brought up yet, which I thought was really funny, and that was the thing about the picture. Oh, yes, yes, yes. So, yeah, the story goes that, well, the um, the Huns are sacking one of these cities in Greece, and you know, these are very luxurious and um, prosperous cities, and they're, they're in some, like, wealthy, you know, home. And there's a picture of depicting Roman dominance over the Scythian nation. And it shows, I believe, Caesar standing above a prostate barbarian like i don't know if he's pointing down at him or has his his foot on him or what but he's dominating him and when the huns i think when attila saw that he took it to like the governor of the city and demanded that it was changed and they like found the original artist to come change the artwork (laughs) so that the huns were pointing down at caesar and the Romans were prostrate <laughs> below the Huns. Like, <laughs> oh man, that's so great! It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think that's Attila. I mean, I hope I hope we did him justice. I'm sure we left out. Yeah, all this stuff, I mean, but... he's just there's just so much mystery there. Like, I mean, it's it's an interesting character, and obviously, I feel like there's some rabbit holes we could go down with the story. But I think we covered all the major points and. Okay, we got the the sword, the ring. Um, there's all kinds of fun tropes in this story. I think that's another reason why it's kind of it's it does have this like very kind of legendary it does, dude. air to it, it. It feels like it's something out of the Middle Ages, and it's not though. It, like it, it, yeah, it's but it does. I mean, again, we, with so little documentation, it it probably has taken on this kind of fairy tale. Absolutely, air, and like right. So. I've been trying to kind of get some of the historiography on the Huns and. So basically, the only descriptions that we have of Attila's like appearance is from the Priscus account. So it's basically just one one guy. Like that's how scarce this information is. Like I don't understand what was happening in this time and place, but I guess you know people of learning, people of letters were 
probably becoming scarcer and scarcer and i don't know yeah i mean like well do you think it's that people were like busy writing like religious texts and stuff like that might be part of it. that might know. be part of it yeah, yeah i I'm, mean like why yeah why weren't more roman historians writing about these hun people right like i don't it's just weird that we don't know more about them like some yeah. of the other roman enemies we know a lot about like the carthaginians like we know intimately about hannibal and about how their society well actually that's not actually true that carthage is kind of mysterious too but we know a lot more about them than we know about the Huns. And the Huns were way more powerful. It, it really was kind of a unique time where this latent potential, this latent energy, this latent power in the, quote, barbarian world. Well, when it was harnessed, it was incredibly powerful, but it was really hard to harness it. And you needed a guy like Attila, you know. And But yeah, and so yeah. this kind of, you know, the Romans actually kind of win this war. Like this is kind of, um, it's kind of a Roman victory, actually. But it really does mark the end of um, the Roman Empire. And after this, there's no more victories. <laughs> like, this is the last one, basically. <laughs> this is the very <laughs> last one. Pretty much, dude, yeah. This is the last big okay. victory. And again, so we can, the general got assassinated. Yeah, so we can say that, like, that Rome kind of slides or continues to slide into, like, a generalized shit show from here. And But, like, are, are we going to stay with Rome or are we traveling to another area of history to take a look at something now we are definitely going to take a break from rome i'm all roamed out yeah i feel a little roamed out too <laughs> i've been reading given cool. for like a year now i need i need a break so um <laughs> yeah that's cool so I, yeah i think we're gonna go to ancient persia and probably look at herodotus and xenophon and yeah examine the persian civilization we've talked about them in almost every single episode i've mentioned them two or three times in this episode and well herodotus and xenophon were both greeks is that's that correct, correct. Yes. now xenophon are was there... a no the persians did not have good historians i don't oh okay i was gonna say are there any like um you know persian historian texts that we could check out like... yeah i don't know if it was just destroyed really thoroughly during later eras which is possible a lot of the Zoroastrian culture was very much kind of targeted by early Islamic civilization. Interesting. So I don't know if they had historians, but we don't know of any. At least I don't. I mean, I'm sure they did, but we don't have any great Persian accounts that I know of, at least. Later okay. later emperor. So that's the Achaemenid Empire. That's like the first one of the first ones. But the, the Sassanid Empire, I, we have more accounts from that. You know, it's a much later time. But but anyways, I think you know, Persia's a really interesting place. And it's kind of the origin for a lot of Western philosophy was this idea of trying to reconcile good and evil in the world. And like they believed in, in goodness, that God was good, but they acknowledged the presence of evil. And so the whole kind of religion was based around how do we, how do we reconcile that? How can we still believe in goodness, but accept that there's evil? And it's very similar to the Christian uh, Trinity. There's three different you know aspects of God and it's, it's a really interesting culture, and I'm really excited to talk about it. Yeah, you know, actually, interestingly enough, the idea of there being like these three different aspects of God is something that comes up a lot. The number three comes up all the it time. It does, in dude, yeah. Studies. But yeah. just like the sword and the stone thing that we were talking about, like, or the, the adoration and naked sword, I didn't really bring it up, but a lot of people think that is the origin of the sword and the stone myth. Arthur wielding Excalibur, 
is the same as Attila wielding the sword of God, right? Like it's the same. Yeah. It's the same myth. Absolutely. Like, yeah. It's it is the same myth, and and then you this thing with the princess and all of that shit, right? Like it's it feels very Arthurian. It does, dude. Right? And, and you know, this is kind of this is about four hundred and fifty. So we're I guess we are kind of on the edge of the Dark Ages. We're we're basically at the end of antiquity here. This is. Kind of. So what's happening in, in Britain right now where these Arthurian legends are supposedly taking place? Okay, so... Do we know? We know that Roman authority fell hard in Britain around this time. And when when people like Stilicho and Aetius were having to gather all the troops they could find and bring them back to Italy, well, they're taking them from places like Britain. And meanwhile, Britain has its own problems. They have huge walls in place to keep their own barbarians out. But when they take all the troops away, well, the barbarians invade and they make their own kingdoms and they kind of cast down the Roman authority in Britain. And this is kind of the dawn of um, maybe like a fusion of kind of Celtic and Germanic um, civilization in Britain and Roman. So it's kind of a fusion of those three things. Okay, interesting. If there was a historical Arthur, I think he's believed to be like in the 500s, so that maybe be like 100 years from now. But we're kind of yeah we're kind of right there on the edge of like going from roman armies with their javelins to knights in shining armor with chivalry and stuff like so this is kind of a bridge here yeah interesting okay well i think we should definitely maybe someday look at uh, arthur was he like uh, from a historical context i think that could be really fun i would fun. love to talk about that yeah i actually have a guest in mind and i'm going to ask them if they might be able yeah. to do that so Fuck yeah, yeah. <laughs> i I know a lot of the kind of romantic French literature is a source for kind of a lot of the modern notions of it, like Guinevere and these kind of court intrigues and stuff. But the actual legends are much older than the romantic French period. Very mysterious. Yeah, I'd love to learn more. Hell yeah. Okay, so I'm stoked to, you know, look, we've been looking at things from a very Greek Roman standpoint. I'm curious to look at things from the Persian standpoint, well, still through the lens of Greek historians, unfortunately. Yes, unfortunately. Well, and this is Herodotus and Xenophon. And Herodotus had a lot of respect for the Persians. I know. I remember we talked about this in our Herodotus episode. Yeah, right? yeah. So pretty much what we know about Persian history is from Herodotus. So mm-hmm. it's one of the cradles of civilization, and it influenced the East and the West. And it's a powerful state pretty much through its entire history, and it's still a powerful state. And yeah, I think that it would be beneficial to talk about it. And, you know, Xenophon was actually working for the Persians. So he was a Greek mercenary fighting in these Persian civil wars. And this will be a great kind of uh, counterpoint to the Greek perspective on the Persian wars, because the, the Persians have a different kind of view on it, where... They claim that they were the ones that kind of caused the Peloponnesian. Once they were defeated, they were able to sow discontent between Athens and Sparta and get them to fight each other. So it's kind of an angle of it that we don't talk about in Western cities. Okay. So, yeah, so I, I'm super excited to talk about Persia, but um, I hope all the Rome stuff um, made sense. And I, I think it did. I mean, hopefully it did. Um, don't be too competent in Rome. Or in any declining civilization, or you'll get murdered. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, dude. That was one of the things we learned again today. Don't ever, uh, you know, like, use the cards that you're dealt. If somebody gives you a sword, say, hey, fuck yeah, thanks. This sword (laughs) means that I'm the best. (laughs) 
<laughs> I love it. Just like some some shepherd finding like an old sword in a field. Yeah. That's divine providence. It's God, you know, like <laughs> See? Just like I've been telling you. That's <laughs> so good. <laughs> well, hell yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the other shows on the network real quick. Um oh, yeah? which you should all check out if you are interested. If you're into the paranormal, mythology, basically anything outside of the realm of the everyday, check out Unearthing Paranormalcy, which is the podcast that tries to dig into the paranormal and find normalcy in it. We've got Administrism, which is an awesome podcast about um, trying to find ways of combining uh, homesteading and magic and um, environmentalism and you know kind of like appreciation for people who lived before you on the land wherever you're living oh yeah um and kind of like you know blending those things together which is pretty dope um we've got the faith blind council podcast which is a great place to hear practical information about chaos magic um we also have the lexicult podcast which is a show that i do um which is talking about like combining it's uh, exploring the intersections of uh, science and magic, uh, technology, philosophy, all kinds of that shit through the lens of chaos. And we also have Smuts Up, which is a embarrassing. <laughs> it's a terrible podcast. show put on by bad people, and you should not yeah, listen it's, to it. <laughs> yes, it, there's plenty of disclaimers, <laughs> um, and but I have gotten some pretty good feedback about it. Um, some people have called it, you know, chaotic and unlistenable, but other people are into it. So that's cool. We're, we, we're appreciating all this. Yeah, stuff, no, there's so. a lot of good stuff. A lot of good people coming together and I think it's exciting. Hell yeah. I don't, I think we've got everybody. Um, So shout out to everybody listening. Thank you all so much for listening to the ad hoc history podcast. Um, If you have suggestions, questions, uh, corrections, you know, uh, <laughs> please don't feel shy. You can hit us up at, ad hoc history pod at gmail.com yep and what's our instagram it is at ad hoc history all right excellent and yeah the the email isn't checked very regularly so i would encourage you to use instagram if you want to contact us okay (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i'm posting some cool maps and stuff and for this episode i'll try and find some hunnic artwork and maybe some pictures of what the battle might have looked like and cool stuff like that yeah and and there is some talk of like um getting some youtube videos up too and we can hopefully have some of these uh maps in there and stuff for y'all but that's a time intensive process so that will happen when it happens but it's in the works well thank you guys so much for joining us and uh thank you luxa I hope um, I hope you enjoyed this. I hope it made sense. And hell yeah, thank you, Asher. It was very fun. I'm still stoked on Attila. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you in the next one. <laughs> All right, take care, everybody. As your body grows bigger, your mind must flower. It's great to learn, cause knowledge is power. Now we know. And knowing is half the battle. Ad Hoc History is a part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. To hear more great independent productions like the one you just listened to, visit our catalog at tgmpodcastnetwork.com.